My name is George Stagg, lead pastor of Twin Cities Church, our sister site in St. Paul. Greets all of you. It's good to be back. I missed you guys. I mean, it's, I was gone for 12 days, and I honestly missed all of you. I appreciate, appreciate and love you all. I love this church, and I'm glad to be here. I'll have a little report about the, the trip sometime in the future. But uh, it was great to spend some time with uh, some brothers and sisters in the Lord in, in France and in Portugal, and as our work continues to develop in the Portuguese-speaking world. But uh, I don't have time for that report this morning. We're finishing our series on, on Revelation, as Adam mentioned, and no, we haven't been preaching from it for nine years. Uh, there are churches that do, uh, never get out of Revelation really, but... Um, we try to preach and teach the whole counsel of God, and it's an important part, how we think about our future. Uh, for those of you that are in the church, you got a message this week from me uh, in the city saying that if you haven't watched the movie Arrival yet, you need to because I'm going to spoil it for you this morning. And so I know that some of you indeed had the opportunity to watch uh, the movie and did. Um, so I want to just kind of make some connections there. So, the main character of the movie, Louise Banks, Amy Adams' character, you get introduced to her at the beginning, and you observe right away that she is a sad and lonely person. Uh, the, the environment that she's around is, is dark and gray, she's not happy, she's depressed, and you begin to wonder why, immediately when you meet her, uh, what's going on with this person. As the movie unfolds, you get um, glimpses uh, from what seems to be her past. Um, her daughter died of cancer. And um, so you can, okay, so that gives you some picture as to why this character, Louise, is, is depressed. And in the midst of, of kind of discovering who this woman is and what her past is, the government has come to ask her to lead a team that is trying to understand why these aliens have come to Earth. Twelve ships have come, spread themselves around the world, and each of the ships opens up a door for a certain amount of time each day, and a team of people go in trying to communicate with the aliens um, who they are, what is their purpose of being on the Earth. They're trying to discern whether or not they are hostile. And she is a... Uh, she is a, uh, a linguist, a professional uh, linguist, and understands uh, language and the formation of language and makes an effort to, to discern their, uh, their speech, but more importantly, their, their written language. Um, but it takes a long time. And there are 12 of these ships and there are 12 nations trying to understand who these aliens are and what their purposes are. And so you, the, the world begins to get a sense that they're hostile. It's a misinterpretation of something that they said. And so literally the, the earth is on the verge of an apocalypse. And that's the imagery that you get in the movie and that the world's about to end. And then she comes to the point where she understands their language. And they have given her a sense and an understanding of, of how they communicate and that our human understanding of time 
uh, is not the only way to understand time and that these aliens have a way of understanding time and their language reflects it so that they don't see things linear, linearly, but they see time as um, all, your life is kind of all encompassed at a single moment. Um, and, and so she gets this gift from them through the discerning of their language and some uh, psychic power thing that they give her where she begins to see her life not as a linear unfolding of events, but kind of she can see the beginning and the end, so her past and her future as she exists at that point. And so then you begin to pick up, and she begins to realize, because she didn't know where these images were coming from of her dying daughter. You, you as the watcher, interpret it as... Um, her past, but for her, she has these images, and at the beginning, until she realizes that she can look into the future, she, she's trying to figure out what these images are. And she's trying to figure out why she doesn't have a husband around, a father around for her dying daughter. And so she begins to put all these pieces in place because these aliens have given her this gift of being able to see time in a very different way. And she then has the ability to see the future. And so the whole movie unfolds from that point and the world is saved because of actions that she takes because she can see into the future and act into the future and it all kind of comes together. But the point of the movie, I believe, it's not just a great sci-fi story about aliens and apocalypse and saving the world. But times throughout, and it's the, the formation of this woman's story, it comes down to a few important questions that they have. Um, because she knows that before she has a husband and before she has a daughter, she knows that the daughter is going to die of cancer. And so she asks this man who was on her team that she gets into a relationship with, that she falls in love with, she asks him, would you have a child knowing that she would die? Would you have a child knowing that she would eventually die? Well, she answers that question, yes, and he never really answers because he doesn't really know what's going on and where she's coming from. But afterwards... He leaves her because he wouldn't have made the same choice. And so it's these questions, the idea of these questions. Would you live the same way in your present reality if you knew what was going to happen in the future? Would you marry the person you married? Would you have the children that you had? Would you move to where you move, knowing how the future would unfold? And so it's a it's a great question, it's a great philosophical question, and it's a great question to ask and help you determine how you think about your life and regrets and those kinds of things. But the book of Revelation leaves us, leaves us with some of the same types of questions. Because the book of Revelation is a vision into the future. It doesn't give us all the details about our lives in terms of what's going to happen with our marriages or what's going to happen with our kids. But it does give us insight into the future generations, into our future generations, um, if certain things don't take place, that we do have some 
uh, control over. The warnings throughout Revelation aren't just to the present generation. The warnings in Revelation are to us and our, and our future generations. And there's a connection in Revelation between the actions and attitudes that we take now and what's going to happen with the future generations because of us. And so we have the question, how does knowing the future affect decisions that will affect, that will affect not only my future, but also the future of my children and the generations that follow? And so today, what I want to do is just kind of present some of the big ideas of Revelation in conclusion um, that I think are important as we embrace the apocalyptic vision and set a course for our lives knowing the future, knowing the future. And so there are, there are four points that I want to bring up. First of all, um, we, in, in our apocalyptic vision, we need to embrace the kingdom of Jesus and we need to reject Babylon. The second point is that decisions concerning sexuality, money, and power are affecting not only you, but your children and your children's children. All right, these are the big three. This is Babylon. Money, sex, and power. Third point, you and the future generations need the local church in order to stand firm against the Antichrist in Babylon. The book of Revelation is written to the churches. It is the churches that overcome. It is the churches that overcome. But consequently, also point four, the local church needs you and future generations in order for it to stand firm against the Antichrist in Babylon. Uh, we are the church. We are the church. The people make up the church. And if you can remember, when we went over the seven letters in chapters two and three, the churches were being commended by Christ or corrected by Christ and of the seven churches, five were compromised, two severely compromised, and were on the threat of losing the spirit altogether, which means that from a generational standpoint, they would become apostate churches. Okay, the, the gospel is pretty clear. The teachings of Christ are pretty clear. Once we have believed in the gospel and received the Holy Spirit, that Holy Spirit is a gift, and it cannot be withdrawn until we are with God in, the king, in his kingdom with Christ. So we can't lose our salvation. But a church, as we can't lose our salvations as, a, as individuals, but a church can lose the spirit. You understand? We're only one generation away from being apostate as a church. If our children do not continue on with the faith, the church loses the spirit. The church loses the spirit. And to the churches that were compromised, corrections came and said, there are those among you, church, that have maintained faithfulness, that have, that have maintained their love for Jesus Christ, it's up to you to do what you need to do in the church to correct the influence of Babylon, the immoralities and the idolatries that exist. So the church needs everybody in the church participating. So those are the big four points that I want to address. The first one is this embracing of the kingdom of Jesus and a rejection of Babylon. I, the songs were just absolutely perfect today, worship team, in terms of the selection and spirit. Jesus is the ruler of the leaders of the world. Jesus is the ruler. It's Jesus' kingdom that is coming. It is Jesus' kingdom that is now. 
And we need to embrace the vision and the kingdom of Jesus, and we need to reject Babylon. The future of the kingdom of this world is, is death. The future of, this, of the kingdom of this world is death, even though it has an appearance of life. And that is the deception of the enemy. Throughout the entire book of Revelation, and there's a few chapters that give us the story of the devil or the Satan, the ancient serpent, the enemy of God, he is active in deceiving the world and making it seem like death is actually life. That death is actually life. I just got done reading uh, Surprise by Joy by C.S. Lewis. It's actually the first entire C.S. Lewis book I've ever read, which is shameful. But I finished it on the trip, and I can understand why people like him so much. Surprised by Joy, have any of you read it? Just a few of you. It is the story of his conversion to Christianity, beginning as a very young boy and going into adulthood, because C.S. Lewis was an atheist and came to Christ as an uh, a older adult. Not like a teenage adult, like in his, I think, 30s or 40s. Didn't give his age. But he calls the book Surprised by Joy because it's really a story, the book is really a story of his pursuit of what he defines as joy. He defines joy as this, an unsatisfied desire which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. An unsatisfied desire which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. And so, that's kind of a hard definition, but it speaks to the deepest yearnings and desires that we have. And at times in our lives, and so the, 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 the book is kind of a, a story of his glimpses of joy and his pursuit of joy. And it begins at a very early age. But this, this idea of joy is this, is this desire that we have inside of us. Um, for, and he says it's really indescribable. For something that we know will bring us to a place of, of, of total fulfillment, total completeness, total contentment. Um, but the thing is, and there are, we have these glimpses of it throughout our lives, but once we kind of glimpse it, it, it goes away, and we try to put our finger on it. We try to put our finger on it. And he eventually comes to a point in his life when he converts to monotheism, okay? Prior to his coming to know Jesus Christ as the Son of God, he comes to a place where there must be one true God. And he comes to a place where, where, where all of the joys of this world, or the joys of Babylon, he kind of comes to a point where he, he recognizes that they're not going to satisfy this deep yearning for joy. He says that you might sum up the gains of this whole period Okay, where he's kind of describing his process of, of seeking out and discovering joy and all of the variety of experiences that he pursued to do that. He says, you might sum up the gains of this whole period by saying that henceforward, the flesh, which specifically in, in his story is sexual temptation, and the devil, which for him was, I mean, he pursued all kinds of different mystic religions, Eastern philosophies, 
occultism. He looked into uh, mystical, otherworldly powers to fill this desire for joy. And though they could still tempt, they could no longer offer me the supreme bribe. I learned that it was not in their gift that all his pursuits of the flesh and all of his pursuits for, for spiritual understanding outside of Christ, he never was able to fulfill this, this, this desire for joy. And the world had never even pretended to have it. And so that, for him, he was never kind of enamored by what people would pursue in the world. And that's just his story. But you can see here um, that the the world of flesh and the devil are the three fronts of the enemies of God, and that's what attacks us. And he's saying, I, I came to a point where I realized where the flesh, my own desires, and the temptations of the world and the temptations of the devil could not satisfy this desire for joy. He says, joy did not point in that direction. And later in his life, he says this, I saw that all my waitings and watchings for joy, all my vain hopes to find some mental content on which I could, so to speak, lay my finger and say, this is it, has been a futile attempt to contemplate the enjoyed. He could never reproduce it. He could never put his finger on it. And he could never experience it. And as he grew more mature in his understanding of God and of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and as he began to understand what true joy was, he said that these experiences of joy or these flashes of joy that kind of come up and that, and that propel you towards this desire, he said they're like signposts. When we are lost in the woods, the sight of a signpost is a great matter. So prior to the finding of joy, these little kind of experiences or flashes of it that we have are pointing us in a direction. And we, and we know that there's this, it, it's never fulfilled, it's just this flash of desire that comes up with a glimpse as to what it should be that gives us this yearning to fulfill it. He says these, these experiences are like signposts and before we find, if we're looking for a road to get back to the city, he said, before we found the road, before we found the city, these signposts are really important. But once we've found the road that goes to the city, the signposts aren't that big of a deal anymore. He comes to know Jesus Christ. The experience of joy, considered as a state of my own mind, had never had the kind of importance I once gave it after he came to know Christ. Once he came to know Christ, he stopped pursuing. He no longer yearned for all these experiences and the fulfillment of that desire because he had found it. The signposts weren't important anymore. It was valuable only as a pointer to something other and outer. I really liked his story as I read it, and I thought it was really applicable to us because Babylon was tempting to C.S. Lewis. And the way he describes this, 
this, um, ex- these experiences of these flashes of desire that point to a, something that could fulfill them. This is exactly what Babylon does. It's exactly what the enemy does. There's a deception that, is, that spreads around this world that causes us to see life in a world that's dying, in a world that's dying. And the challenge that we have is that as, 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 as people um, that don't know Jesus Christ, if we're not willing to be truthful about our experiences, and he has some great comments on experiences, he says, you know, the, the thing about experience is that it's just, it's totally honest. If we're not honest with our honest experiences, in terms of if, we don't, if we're not willing to recognize that they don't satisfy, then we're never gonna, we're never gonna follow the signpost to their ultimate end. The future of the kingdom of God is eternal life, even though suffering characterizes our lives now. And so followers of Jesus, we suffer. Christ said we're gonna suffer, we're gonna have tribulation, we're gonna have persecution. And so the world promises life and we seek life in the world even though its result is death, but we're trying to feel good the entire way. And Christians, we kind of are feeling bad most of the way or the entire way, knowing that in the end it will lead to life. And that's why Jesus said, if you follow me, you're going to suffer. And so we've got that challenge within us. And that's why it's important in the formation of our apocalyptic vision that we stay, that, that we let the word of God and we let his vision of reality and his vision of the world saturate us. So we see a couple places in Revelation where it says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is, is near. That's at the very beginning. And in conclusion, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. We have to say saturated in the words of Scripture. Colossians teaches us, let the word of God richly dwell within you. Why? So we can keep some perspective. You know, as Ryan taught last Sunday, the glories of Babylon are always going to appear glorious. We have to, we have, to have an interpretive lens. They're never going to lead to joy. They're never going to satisfy that inner desire. And that the true glory, the ultimate glory, is the city of God, is Jesus, is, is his spirit dwelling in us as his people and us living together for eternity in the kingdom of God in the great city of the new Jerusalem. And we've got to keep those perspectives and reading scripture is an essential part of that. And worship and praise Several, this morning, I just love the worship and just sense, I think, you know, after prepping and just the, 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 the lyrics and the music and the vocals and hearing you all from behind as I sat up here and hearing the worship team, those little glimpses of joy were present, but I knew what they pointed to. They point to Jesus and he's here and his spirit is present with us. So we have to keep that vision of Jesus Christ being the king and the city of God being the ultimate in glory and not the glories of this world. The second thing, oops, excuse me, um, is that decisions concerning sexuality, money, and power are affecting 
you, your children, and their children. And here's where I think it's important. Um, to under, it, it's important for us to understand that money, sexuality, and power are the doorways into Babylon. That's, that's what Babylon is. But if, if we as Christians are not careful, okay, if we are not careful in our actions and in our thinking and our decision-making around these three things, money, sexuality, and power, power being the pursuit of control over your life, uh, money being um, security is going to be found through economic abundance, and sexuality is just the, the promise of the pleasures of, of human intimacy. And we as Christians can, can go through those doors not, and not lose our salvation. If you have the Holy Spirit of God inside of you, that's a gift that he's given and he's not taking it back. Okay, it's clear teaching of Scripture. But you can lead a life of idolatry given to sex, money, and power. And your kids are the ones that may be the most affected. Because you won't be, or your church family, or your friends, okay, if, you, if you're single and aren't going to be married, or whatever, you have an effect on the people around you, and your witness to them has an effect. And you may be secure in your salvation, but there's others around you that aren't. And they're looking to you, and they're looking at you. It could be your family, it could be close friends. You are called to be a witness, and that was one of the key things of Jesus' corrections to the churches, is that you're no longer being an effective witness. And I'm not going to get into uh, Calvinism and Arminianism and how much you have to play into the salvations of people and God's predestination and all that stuff. I'm, and I'm gonna get into, in, not going to get into that. All I can say is that the, teacher, the scriptures teach that you have a witness to others and that you have an effect on the light that they see of Jesus Christ. And that if you are entering into Babylon, your witness is going to be terrible and it is going to be opposed to the light of Jesus Christ. Your sins and your faithfulness are being passed down. Which do you want to be the witness? Again, you have a vision of the future. And the warnings to the churches are not just to the present generation, it's to future generations. If you're concerned about the health of the church and of the health of the future generations of your family, you need to be vigilant in your abiding in Jesus Christ because you know the future. If you don't, at some point along the way, they will be worshipers of Babylon. Unless through some other means, not through your witness, but through the witness of some other means and the sovereign work of God through the Holy Spirit and the gospel, they come into faith. But it won't be because of you. It won't be because of you. Breaking generational sins and creating generational faithfulness should be our top priorities. Should be our top priorities. And I was reading through the book of Ezekiel right now in my slog through the prophets. And there's a correction that God has. He's delivering through Ezekiel to Israel. And he says, 
you know, you were at a, you were at a comfortable place, Israel. You guys, you guys were wealthy and you were at ease. But you didn't help the people in need around you. And that was why they were being judged. We, we as a church in America, we're not under persecution. It's a different, we, we're under different types of pressure. But we need to be at a place where we recognize the riches that God has given us, not just materially, and that, and that we have an obligation to share, and that judgment comes because of our not sharing. And those are the kind of patterns that our kids need to see, that our neighbors need to see, that we may, we may be Christians and we may be enjoying prosperity and we may be at ease compared to other Christians around the world, but we have an obligation to serve others and those things are passed down. Third thing is that we need the church. We as individuals need the church. The local church, if it's doing its job, will keep teaching the church and modeling through the examples of people in the church. We need the teaching. We need examples to help us from sliding into Babylon. We need to be preaching and teaching and modeling financial stewardship. We need to work hard. It's not a sin to be wealthy. It's a sin to be wealthy and greedy. If you're wealthy, Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, share with those who have need and enjoy what God has given you. It's not just share, it's enjoy and share. But the church needs to be preaching and teaching. And what I've found over the years, whether it's money, sex, or power, getting reminded over time through the scripture, through people, through conversation, these things aren't just like temptations that pop up once and then go away. They are always temptations. And we need to be in a community of people where we are talking about money, where we are talking about sexuality, and we are talking about the pursuit of power and economic security. And we need to be talking about the threats that these have to our lives as Christians. We need to be talking to our kids and each other about the, the gender nonsense that is going on in this world. It, it's saddening. Uh, Time Magazine's recent uh, cover story uh, it's a whole story about teenagers and the confusion around gender in our schools. And some of you that are teachers and those of you that are in our schools understand completely. Everybody's identifying, well, not everybody, but you have people identifying as, as uh, transgender, as queer, as bi, as not knowing. I'm fluid. I can be one on one day and one on the other. You know, what bathroom do I use? Okay, it, it, this is not just one of these things that we can kind of be up in the air about. The scripture's pretty clear. Genesis chapter one, God made man and woman in his image. And what it means to be restored as people is to come back into a restoration as male and female in his image. It's a part of the gospel's work. And if we pull gender and sexuality out of the, out of the work of the gospel, we shut off as 1 Thessalonians 4 says, we block the Holy Spirit's work in our life. So we need to be constantly as a church teaching these things because we can all slide into it. And let me tell you, the, the conversations that I'm having with my kids in the public schools, is, they're not conversations that I thought I would have with my kids when I was 20 years old and 21 years old and starting my family. 
I had no idea I'd be having these kinds of conversations with my 12 and 13 year old. You know, and, and the challenge of the public schools, and we need to think critically about, is that a good place for us to send our kids? I've been a strong proponent of public schools. All my kids have been in the public schools. Okay, but it, it, that is a battleground. I'm not saying not. I'm, I'm just saying that we have got to be always thinking and critiquing and evaluating the context that we're living in because we're one generation away from Babylon. We cannot make it on our own. You know, sometimes I think that God made me a preacher and a teacher and a church leader because I'm so pathetic outside of Christ. I'd be pursuing perfection in Babylon if I wasn't constantly forced as my calling to be in front of the scriptures and to have as my responsibility the care of the souls of people. I think God put me here because if I wasn't here, I would be pursuing Babylon at 110 miles an hour. We need each other. I'm called to the church because I need you. I need you. We cannot make it on our own. And the local church needs you. The local church needs you because we are only who we are as a collective. All the scriptures say that all of us have the responsibility to speak the truth and love to one another and to correct sin in, in spiritual gentleness and to encourage each other in, in, in Christ when we are struggling and stumbling and need encouragement. Great story, Adam, of your house church's faithfulness to, lo- to love and serve you. You know what? We are all in that place. We are all in that place where we need each other. And, and it's not okay, this, this thing called the church and its leaders that are doing the work. It's the leaders have the responsibility to equip the church for works of service. The church does the work, and that's the kind of work it does, helping people come to grips with Christ and continue to be refreshed and renewed, regardless of how many times we have slipped, because we all slip, and we all need to help getting back up. And sometimes our slips are rebellion, and we need strong, stern correction. Sometimes our slips are just completely defeat and, and sins because of depression and despair and anxiety and not rebellion. And it's a different kind of care. But we're all here to care for one another. We're all here to care for one another. And so all of you have to take this seriously. You have to, you have to learn what you need to learn. You need to learn and understand the gospel and of your role and responsibility within the church, okay? Again, the seven letters, the book of Revelation, are written to churches. All the epistles are written to churches or groups of churches. The churches to leaders are, le- are written to leaders of churches and networks of churches. You cannot exist in the kingdom of God fully in the full power of the Spirit unless you are vitally involved in a local church. It's, it's his family. It's, it, it, to think otherwise would be to be a part of, you know, as a believer in the Old Testament, if you were not a part of the nation of Israel then you're not a part of what God is doing. That would, it's inconceivable in the Old Testament to be a part of what God is doing and not be a part of the nation of Israel. It's the same way with the New Testament. You need to be a part of a local church and you need to be vitally involved and engaged and active because it needs you. It needs you. To know and experience Jesus Christ is the only knowledge and experience that will settle your pursuit of joy. 
and he will not crush you as your desires do. If you're in constant pursuit of joy through money, sex, or power, you will never find it, and they will just continue to destroy you and tear you up on the inside because that desire will never be quenched. Like C.S. Lewis describes, he says, you know what? When, once I came to know Jesus Christ, I stopped pursuing joy because I had it. The signposts had done their job. But if you never find Jesus Christ and you just keep pursuing those signposts, you never come to the road, you're gonna drive yourself crazy looking for more and more signposts. I wanna leave you with a final image. Revelation chapter three, verse 20. And this is a, a verse that's commonly used for evangelism. And it's not inappropriately used in that context, but it's written to churches. But the final vision is this that I wanna leave you with. It's, it's an initial vision in the book, obviously, from chapter three, but it is a vision that Jesus intends to give um, for us to have in our minds in order to overcome and to maintain steadfastness. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. One of the visions that Jesus wants to leave us with is a meal is a meal. But it's a different kind of meal than what we can experience here on earth. There are hints of joy in that, in those meals, but it's not going to be what we're gonna experience with Jesus. I was in uh, Lyon, France um, a week and a half ago, spent three days there before going into Portugal, uh, working with a friend of mine as a church planner and works uh, with nonprofits, and he'll be here in May helping us out with some things in Twin Cities Ministries. But I was in Lyon, France, and, and before I left, I had lunch with a friend of mine in the West Side who's a chef. His name is Shane, and I've known him since I was uh, 15 years old. And so, I, so I Shane asked me where I was going. I said, oh, I'm, I'm gonna spend some time in Lyon, France, and then I'm gonna go to, to Portugal for a week. And he's like, oh, George. I am so jealous. Lyon, France is the culinary capital of the world. He says it's not Paris. Paris is good, but he said Lyon. And so he's just really jealous. And, and I, so I want you to envision the cobblestone streets, ancient buildings, the Rhone River. Anybody like Cote de Rhone wine? Red wine? Yeah, Cote de Rhone. It's the sides of the Rhone. The wine comes from the region of the Rhone River. So that's where I was at. Deep history, we looked at some, some ancient uh, amphitheaters from the, from the Romans, uh, BC dated, beautiful place, had several fine meals, great company. Here's a picture. So this is a picture on the left of the cobblestone streets of Lyon, France. And at right is my friend Rich, that's duck breast and french fries and salad and Cote de Rhone wine. Images, you see. Images. You know, and before going, I'm like, oh, I'm going to Lyon, France. I'd never been there before. Culinary capital of the world. And I love food, as you guys all know, and love wine. And are huge temptations for me. But I get there. And this very restaurant where you see Rich sitting there, we got in there and the restaurant was dark and it was cold. I don't know if their power went out or what, but it was uncomfortable. So here I am in, in Lyon, France, all these images of what this is 
possibly could be. But it's not perfect. I was cold and it was dark. They eventually turned the lights on and brought the food out, and it was great, but it was not perfect. I took uh, Rich and his wife, Gina, and they have an 18-year-old daughter, Maddie. Took them out for dinner one night as just a show of my appreciation for the time they give me. And, uh, you know, so we're walking along the streets of Lyon. We were going to go to one of these just neighborhood places that's been around for generations and classic French cooking and ordered this, uh, this meal of chicken and, you know, sauces are just incredible. Some of you <laughs> have eaten with me for a long time know that I sometimes have issues with swallowing. And, I, and I, a particularly problematic is chicken. <laughs> what happens is I get too excited and I have, a, I have an issue with my, my esophagus anyway. It's, it's narrow. And, um, and, so, and, it, and the chicken was dry. I'm like, I'm sitting here in Lyon, France, and I'm eating dry chicken. I was really disappointed. And then like 15 minutes later, I get a piece of chicken stuck in my throat. And Rich is sitting across the table, and he goes, oh, here we go. Because <laughs> 15 years ago, Rich and I met up in Chicago, and we were uh, at Grant Park on the beach in our flip-flops and swimming suits, and we were there for one day together just hanging out. And he's like, hey, I know this great place called Rez's up the way a bit. Let's go grab some food. He says it's like a couple miles. Nine miles later in my flip-flops, we get to Rez's. And, I, you know, I'm starving. And I order beef medallions with rice. And I get something stuck. 45 minutes in the bathroom. Never came out. And I said, I came out rich, I can't eat, man. So we get on the L and we go back. We have to stop at every stop on the way because, this, I mean, this is kind of disgusting, but the saliva builds up in your throat and you can't, I mean, you can't swallow it. And so it took us like an hour to get back to our hotel. And once we get back, it, it went away. It finally slid down. So here I am in this restaurant in Lyon, France. It's like 10 o'clock at night because I eat so late. And it's supposed to be this image of perfection, right? And, I'm, and I've got this thing stuck in my throat go to the bathroom, get it out in just a few minutes. So no big deal, but Rich is like, here we go, because he knows me. <laughs> and so I bring this up because my vision of joy escaped me. My vision of joy, and, and that's what Babylon's visions of joy will always do. They will always escape, and they will never be fulfilling. Just like me and Leon France, disappointments in the midst of beauty, but disappointments and never fulfilling that desire. So Jesus says this, listen, I'm gonna come and I'm gonna eat with you and it will be a meal like you've never experienced before. And later in chapter 19, it is the marriage supper of the lamb. It is the choicest of meat. And the text is pretty specific on this. It is the best wine. And even though if you've struggled with substance abuse and alcoholism, all of that stuff is going to be cleansed. If you suffered from gluttony and overeating and all of the problems, that, all those things are gone. So get rid of all of your bad images of food and drink and fellowship and intimacy. 
Because Jesus is going to bring all of that. He's going to wash it all away. And we're going to share an experience with him that will be completely beyond anything we've ever imagined. And all of our desires will be fulfilled. But it's only fulfilled in Jesus. Babylon can't do it. And so Jesus calls. Open up the door. I'll come in. Let me pray. Lord God, I thank you for the beautiful, rich images that we see in Scripture that give us some signs and that paint some pictures in our mind. And God, quite frankly, thank you for the disappointments of Babylon. Thank you for the disappointments of Babylon because they're not you. And thank you for giving them to us as signposts. But thank you that it is you that brings fulfillment. In Christ's name, amen.